Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Welcome back. Part five of the life of Rudolph Valentino. And last time we kind of left off where he had gotten his divorce. He tried to remarry, had a bigamy trial. He was in jail for two days. A superstar, almost internationally, but certainly in the United States for the chic. And we uh, are back to where he is going to be able to actually truly marry Natasha legally. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, Natasha and where she comes from. We've been calling her Natasha Rambova. That was really her ballet name. Her real name was Winifred Shaughnessy. She was born in Salt Lake City. She was known as Wink. Oh, that's kind of cute. I like that. It is cute. Her father was a Union uh, colonel in the Civil War and an alcoholic and a gambler. So he didn't last long. He kind of went away. Her mother was an interior designer, and she ended up being very successful. One of her second or third husband was uh, Elsie DeWolf's brother. Now, Elsie DeWolf was the premier interior designer to all the rich and powerful people. She was the person who brought style out of the Victorian era into the what we might call modern era. She took interior design away from ostentatious display of lots and lots of stuff, of gigaws and stuffed things and feathers and rugs and all sorts of like very bright colors and a lot of patterns and stuff. And she brought it into being simple. You know, she's the one who really brought in, for better or worse, things like white and beige and tan hmm. and a crew and gray, you know, calming colors, no extraneous furniture, far more simple lines. So this is a whole new sort of modern era of interior design. Natasha's mother was her sister-in-law and also an interior designer. So Elsie DeWolf pretty much took care of Europe and the Eastern United States. And she had Natasha's mother go and handle like California and so forth. Mm-hmm. So she became very successful. So, which was nice, you know, that she was able to make it on her own. They weren't in poverty by any means. And Natasha was born in 1897. And just a reminder, Rudy was born in 1895. So they were very close in age. And uh, Natasha lived till 1966. So she was not uh, somebody who died early like Rudy did. But basically, she always was an outsider, uh, a rebel, very artistic, very, very intelligent person. She was also a very internal person through through her life. Probably had a lot to do with her father being an alcoholic and her mother uh, remarrying a number of times and, and this instability. And also it sounds like her mother was not like a real typically kind of motherly, nurturing kind of mother. She wasn't cruel or anything, but she wasn't really attentive. So Natasha ended up becoming very internal, very withheld. She didn't show her cards. And much later, um, people will note frequently that she seemed very cold, very distant, uh, not not approachable. Now, obviously, we talked about their romance and how they got together earlier. And, and Rudy brought, managed to break through that through his passionate heat of, right. of interest and love and admiration. And, and so she melted for him and apparently at times could show great great emotion but normally she was very held together when she was eight like she was sent home from camp summer camp for conduct unbecoming a lady 
Uh-huh. Now, they didn't say what that was. It could be something like refusing to wear the clothes that they required, or she, you know, like went swimming. Talked back, yeah. Talked back, ran through the woods in bare feet. Who knows what it was, but she was sent home because of that. So she was kind of a, a, a troublesome child, much like Rudy was, you know. And so she ended up being sent across the pond to an upper-class English boarding school in Surrey, and she stayed there until she was 17. She was managed to make it and be under control, uh, I think mostly because the atmosphere was different. She was maybe away from her family, and she spent the summers with Elsie DeWolf. Elsie DeWolf was a, was a lesbian who was partners with the literary agent to George Bernard Shaw's Somerset Moham. Basically, Natasha would go and stay at Elsie's house and hang out with uh, these, you know, G.B. Shaw and Somerset Mom and people like that. People Very cultured. Very cultured, very literary. And so this really helped form her. Plus, you know, a lot of taste, a lot of taste makers going on. So she really got into, in her very young years, uh, teenagerhood and young adulthood, avant-garde things. And in those days, avant-garde was like Art Nouveau and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bauhaus and all these these movements that were breaking away from the stodge of the Victorian era. She got very deeply into mythology, and she read a lot about mythology. And all of these things were very au courant for people who were artsy and edgy. And they also had a whole flower of what we now would call New Age. But it wasn't called New Age then, but it was the same stuff. It was Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, Asian cultures and especially like from India and Egypt. Spirituality, kind of oriental spirituality. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. People really studying it very, I mean, really very seriously with, with real intent, not necessarily trying to be dilettantes. Although, of course, as it works out into the culture, there's a lot of dilettantism or a lot of, you know, they didn't have the internet then. They didn't have the communications. So you might find one book in a library if you're lucky. Or if you have enough money, you might be able to go to New York and go to a bookstore and find books. I mean, so information wasn't easily come by. So um, that popular wave of something would come through and that would be all you would have to know. And you go, well, this is really great. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't really dig in. So I don't really, when I say dilettantism, I I actually maybe shouldn't use that term because it is kind of sneering moralistic yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's like down putting although the standard newspapers the media of the time since they were run by men and since a lot of this exploration was done by women once again we're seeing it was. cultural misogyny it really was now there were plenty of men who were interested too but it tended and i don't know if maybe it was mostly women or if it was just the fact that uh, mainstream media and mainstream culture because it was so paternalistic, wanted to label it as womanish. Woman, womanish, therefore they could put it down so that the, then the men who were interested in it get pulled down as being not masculine. Here we are again. Right. That was really a huge dynamic going on there. But anyway, she was into all of these things. She was also a really good dancer. She studied ballet and she was a, you know, very tall and thin, so she also had a beautiful look to her and a line, but she was a very good dancer. And she ended up going to study with a guy named Theodore Kosloff, who had been part of the Ballet Russe. Now, the Ballet Russe, uh, I think we talked about that, didn't we, when we talked about France? Yeah, we did. Okay, so I won't go into who, what the Ballet Russe is. He was a would have been a great dancer from Russia. A lot of creds there for dancing with the Ballet Russe, and so he she went there to get some training in, in uh, London. 
and she performed in his company and she taught she designed clothing all for free wow so she wasn't paid for any of this that she was doing and this is actually when her name changed from winifred shaughnessy which i think is a beautiful i think winifred is is really a pretty name uh, to natasha rambova and that was really the the standard of the time everybody just pretty much said well if you're not russian you're not good so people always change their name because they wouldn't be taken seriously if they had an american name so anyway she changed her name and uh, she ended up having a love affair with the guy He's way older than her, of course, uh-huh. and he had lots of love affairs with a lot of the women going on. They were kind of like he was building like a little, little harem, a little harem, a little cult, you know, of these women. So her mother heard about this and was going to stamp it out. She was going to put her foot down on it and call her back. So Natasha, because she was underage, she ran away. She ran to London, and she got a job. I guess he hired her to be the nanny. And live with his wife and children wow. in London. Of course, the wife doesn't know right. who she is. And so she's living there, posing as a governess. God. I know. Believe that or not. And so her, so her mother, uh, was what she was trying to do was have him deported for statutory rape. Mm. And so she started these proceedings against him. And so Natasha held out. Kind of she blackmailed her mother and said, if you drop the charges, I will come out of hiding. So her mother finally dropped the charges, and uh, Natasha came back out, and she continued to be his quote-unquote apprentice. <laughs> Basically, he found that she really was great at designing, and so what he would do is he'd contract out as a designer for shows and dance companies and stuff. He'd have her do the designs, and he'd just sign them and take them over, God. and he'd take all the money. What a... Oh, he was. taking advantage, just a user. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and she was so young, and, you know... The, Terrible. So what happened was, is they ended up all going to Hollywood because uh, D.W. Griffith was doing his Intolerance there and all these big movies where a lot of designs were needed. So Kozlov ended up getting her to do designs for those, a lot of those movies. And he also then got hired by Nazimova. She wanted to do designs for, I think, a, a play or movie. I don't know which it was, probably a movie, called Aphrodite. And she wanted to have these avant-garde, beautiful... <laughs> She's so funny. <laughs> she is. She's she's hilarious. I wouldn't want to be her child, but no. she was pretty hilarious. And so she hired Kosloff, and uh, he make her make the designs. He he signs them, but he can't doesn't have time to go and take them over there. So he has Natasha deliver them. Big mistake on nice. his part. And so Nazimova uh, takes a look at at them and says, "Oh yeah," but she wanted a couple alterations, so a few things changed. So Natasha just grabs them and with a pencil she. It makes the changes that Nazimova asked for. So Nazimova catches on. Oh, you're the designer. Uh-huh. And so basically what she does is she just hires her on the spot. Says, I want you to be my designer. And so Natasha figured out that Kozlov is not going to take this in good part. So she's a little bit scared. He probably was very domineering and oppressive. That's how he got everybody to stay and do stuff for free, right, ultimately. So when he was supposed to be out of town, she was packing her bag and she was leaving. And she's running away. Kozlov comes back and sees her, and he shoots her in the leg with birdshot. Oh my God! I know. And if you, I've been in a place where people don't know what birdshot is. 
So basically it's a capsule of a whole bunch of tiny little pellets that they shoot into the air hoping to catch a bunch of birds and they don't have to be very big because birds sprays, are little. Yeah. And it sprays. But that hurts like hell and can really damage you. So he, and she's a dancer and, and she, aiming for her leg. Yes, exactly. What an asshole. I know. So she runs to, to Nazimova and had to go to the doctor and, and have medical treatment and everything. And she had scars from that and she was traumatized. Yeah. But again, she kept everything so internal. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say exactly how traumatized she was, but it certainly made her less trusting and more withheld over time. That was what happened to her, and then she was shortly thereafter met Rudy. Poor Natasha. So just to kind of go back and catch up on a few things, during the time that Rudy and uh, Natasha had to be separated, he filmed uh, a movie called The Young Raja, which is kind of a terrible movie. We found it extremely boring. It only exists in a uh, truncated, you know, just bits of it there. They lost pieces of it, and it's been recreated as best it could be. So yeah. if you get it on DVD, that's what you'll get. Right. Um, and I, because we were talking about that sort of orientalist spiritualism being in vogue, this is sort of like that. It's an, it's another movie where, I guess, his other movie where he plays like an exotic character. He's He a, really is Indian in this one. He's not a European who was adopted. Who was adopted by a Raja. He's actually an Indian... Uh, son of a Raja who goes and goes to school in England and and then he ultimately has to go home and you get to see him a little bit. Most of the really juicy parts are the parts that have been lost in terms of Rudy's costuming. Yeah. He starts out, he's wearing European dress and he looks very nice in that. We all know that. He can wear that. And then Natasha designs these, I mean, these amazing, tur- I mean, that guy can wear a turban like nobody's business. These amazing turbans and these like gold-linked kind of loincloth bikini, yeah. Yeah, and the, the best one is this pearl outfit. It's like, he's kind of, body's kind of draped with pearls. And yeah. Strands of pearls hiding certain strategic areas and yeah. so you can you can google this and see photos of it online and he looks great but yeah, yeah he looks pretty fantastic but you don't get to see it in the movie because that's part of the part that was lost and then also that year now th- this is a movie that he made at his when, under his new contract with famous players lasky so he made a few other movies that year he made a moran of the lady letty he made beyond the rocks and he made Blood and Sand, so we'll, we'll touch each of those, give you our ideas about them and kind of how they fit in. And again, Rudy went into this, jumped into this contract. He wants to make films of artistic merit, and he went to the exact wrong studio for that. And they're liars. So they're constantly promising him things that just never occurred. Moran of the Lady Letty, that one was okay. It was a pretty good film. Uh, they wanted to show him as being masculine, so he wears a lot of tight t-shirts, has some punch-ups. It's, it takes place on a boat. Um, yeah. The Lady Letty is a boat. Right, thank um, you. Ship. <laughs> and so it's his seafaring movie, and it's worth watching. It's, it's good. It's actually very entertaining. You know, he climbs the masks, he, he pulls ropes. He's got uh, a romance with a woman, and uh, as you would expect. He doesn't do any hand-kissing. They, yeah. they avoided the hand-kissing in this one. Because that's too European. He's very all-American in this one, quote-unquote, as we would say. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty entertaining. So that one was, that one was all right. And then he uh, made Beyond the Rocks. 
And that was uh, actually kind of a star vehicle. Now, right now, he then managed to get his pay up to $1,000 a week. And it is important for us to track his pay because this is a very motivating thing because he's spending money. Now he's, you know, now he's got money. He spends it faster than it comes in. But he's making $1,000 a week. So now the pay is rising. So he's able to stay somewhat stable at this point. We should note that when we're talking about how much they make a week, they're only making that a week when they work on right. films. Right. So if they're going out to premieres and they're promoting the movie, they don't get paid. If they're taking a week's vacation to rest, they don't get paid. If they're doing research on the movie, they don't get paid. It's only when they're actually filming. So unless you're working back to back to back to back to back, which is really just, I can't imagine. Because I mean, a these, grind, yeah. Yeah, cause, and it's not like you're even working eight hour days. You know, with these movies, you're working 12, 14 hour days, maybe longer, I don't know, uh, with all of this. So so it's it's a lot. It's still a lot of money, but it's not as much as it sounds. And, you know, other people at his level, because now he's had two major hits, are making five to $10,000 a week. He's being shortchanged again. But in uh, Beyond the Rocks, at least he stars with Gloria Swanson, who we will all know as the star of... Sunset Boulevard, one probably yeah one of his most famous enduring co-stars. She's totally the top female star at this time. Uh, Mary Pickford was going into retirement. She was you know she was still the queen of Hollywood, but she wasn't the star. Um, she was now more of a producer. Uh, Gloria Swanson was a huge huge star, uh, top paid person probably in Hollywood. She was the mistress of Joseph P. Kennedy, father mm. of John F. Kennedy. Mm. And he, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, even though we don't like to admit it, because now they're like American royalty family, he was a, he was a gangster, essentially. And he made his money um, uh, rum running, uh, alcohol from Europe into the United States, sneaking in the United States during Prohibition, and probably did a lot of other things as well. He was one of the gangsters who was kind of running Hollywood. Enough said there. Anyway, she and Rudy worked together, two megastars, and this movie had been lost. So this, so this movie was lost until 2003. It had been found in a collection of uh, this pack rat gentleman. In like Denmark or something. Yeah, who died. And he, when they went through his stuff, they found thousands of cans of silent films, nitrate films. Yeah, he had them stored and like stashed away in various warehouses. And he had the movies, different like reels split up between different warehouses and there's a little feature about it on the DVD but it's it's a very interesting story in and of itself and you get to see some of the restoration process that goes into it but yeah so these films are still being rediscovered and this one was restored very nicely yeah and pretty but there are piece there are some chunks missing but he's he plays a very elegant role it takes place in Europe um, and it's about the love affair between him and Gloria Swanson and she's married to an older gentleman and she doesn't want to breach her vows, even though she loves Rudy. Her husband is not a bad man or any, there's no reason to hurt him. A lot of hand kissing in this one. Some really good hand kissing. Good hand kissing. He gets to conduct a mountain rescue. Great little mountain rescue. Some climbing on the rope there. Neck kissing. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, yeah, it's flower sniffing. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they did do a great restoration. And it's just amazing that it hadn't been seen in almost 100 years. And uh, it was really cool because in the restoration, when they found it, the name on the 
Dutch version was Golden Chains. And so they, you know, everybody had this list of these movies of the, the everyone is looking for, and this was one of them. And they, just by chance, they happened to recognize Valentino. Mm-hmm. They're like, what? Wait? And then they looked through and they, and they remembered the, what the story was. So it was really fantastic. Now, I don't really feel they have any chemistry. I feel like they've got, both have a really great presence. It's just, I don't, I feel like they're both in their star sphere. And I think that's mostly because of Swanson. She's just very much the grand dame. Although in real life, she was a very, apparently, great co-star. They had a great time together, uh, played practical jokes on each other. They went riding together and shared secrets and their heartaches and so forth, which is really very sweet. I guess one point, though, uh, in the movie, um, she supposedly drops her handkerchief, and he picks it up and he smells the perfume. And her joke was, because he would eat Italian food at lunchtime which was kind of a trial for his co-stars. So she crushed up a bunch of garlic and stuck it in the handkerchief. And then when she drops it in the scene, he picks it up and he sniffs it and gets a big nose full of garlic. <laughs> I thought that was really very funny. It's a good prank. It was. It was a good prank. I'm sure it wasn't a mean prank. It was very, very cute. Then he also made a really great movie. One of our very top movies this so year. So next comes Blood and Sand in 1922, the same year. And yeah, this is one of our top five Rudolph Valentino films. And in this one, he also, he gets to play a fiery Spaniard. He plays a bullfighter, which is also one of his, probably his second most iconic role, would you say? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And he had been promised by famous players Lasky that the film just previous to this was going to be made in New York. And it wasn't. It was made in California. He's like, grr, they're lying to me. And so Blood and Sand, he was promised that it would be made in Spain. So he really get the Spanish countryside. And, and he just wanted to go back to Europe. I mean, he wanted to go back. And they said, no, you know, we can't. The budget, budget won't allow it. But it'll be made in New York. You're like, okay, because New York's second best. Because and then they say, no, nope, sorry, can't do it. It's going to be made in California. Why so, do they keep stringing him along like this? Yeah, it's a short-term um, strategy to quiet him down. Yeah. But there's this pressure building inside him where he's getting really, really anxious. And doesn't get uh, control over anything. And he wanted a certain director to direct this. And they said they would get him. And then it was a different director. They just were really jerking him around. Plus, they weren't raising his pay. Even though he was making $1,000 a week, they weren't raising his pay really commensurately with the money he was making. His, his films were being very successful. They were all making money. You know, things like his persona and it was just was building. And I mean, he was obviously a growing star. He wasn't a flash in the pan. And the hot ticket, Eleanor Glynn, who is the uh, novelist, very, very popular novelist, she was kind of like the Stephanie Meyer of her day. And her, her novels, a lot of her novels were made into films. And she's the one who came up with the it, that she's got it, the mm. it girl. The it factor. Yeah, basically sex appeal. But she, she's the one who turned it to it. And that was, again, a big cultural moment. She said of Valentino that he looked dangerous and not to be teased with impunity. He looked as if he knew everything about love. Ooh, nice. <laughs> I like that a lot. So uh, during this time in 1922, one of the things that kind of puts a damper on some of these movies is that the, the Hayes office, which is the code, which gets talked about a lot, they started making some rules about various uh, things that you could do in film. And 
they decided that kisses could only be three seconds long. <laughs> so silly. So in the movie, uh, Beyond the Rocks and in Blood and Sand, they filmed all the kisses twice. One for the American version and one for the European version. Oh, funny. <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> or, one, or for the rest of the world version. Isn't that hilarious? So uh, the one th- good thing about Blood and Sand is that Mathis, June Mathis, got back on board because she hadn't done any treatments for any of Rudy's films. So famous players Lasky decided, okay, they finally give her one to adapt. So she adapted Blood and Sand. And the thing that you see when she adapts the movies, uh, the, the, the material... They are so much more florid. I mean, they work really well for him, but they 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 don't tend to have the snap and zip. They do feel like romancy. Yeah, overblown sort of your image of a silent romance movie. Yeah. Yeah, very, very. Oh, yeah. And, oh, and uh, extending uh, the arms. And... Well, well, it's not even that because that's from the director. But it's the 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 what they say is very. It's 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 poetical in kind of an old-fashioned way, and it's very melodramatic language that she puts in there and and has them do. Um, so, yeah, so you, you'll just notice that it worked well for him at the time, but I think he's better in the. I, I like the movies better that are a little bit snappier. Although I love Blood and Sand, top five. Yeah, it's not number one though. So they started filming Blood and Sand, and it was a huge flipping hit. And he's really good in it. If he plays a young man who's all monkeyish and and mischievous and you know uh, jumping around, and you really see the physicality, putting flowers in his hat, chucking his mother under the chin, charming everybody, and then he becomes the bullfighter, and he's this hot bullfighter in these tight clothes. Yeah, he looks great in the. I don't remember what the outfit is. Yeah, I forget what it's called. The bullfighter. Uh, uniform. Yeah, and he gets out there, and and he really worked on again his technique and getting the right technique. So he really, really acts it. And that this is one of the first movies where they took the person doing, you know, kind of close up doing action, and then they took snippets of real bullfights and they intercut it. And it's not too bad. In some works, I said, oh, it's terrible. They really blah blah blah. Other works, oh, this is so innovative, you know. So it was innovative, and I thought they did okay. Uh, but of course. It wasn't him, so. And then there's the other part where he's married and he's got the pure love with the really boring woman who's very beautiful but very boring. And then he's sucked in to a torrid affair with Nita Naldi, who I love Nita Naldi. Mm-hmm. She's wonderful, and she's probably our favorite of Rudy's co-stars. Yeah. Even though she never plays his, like you know, legitimate love interest. Not in any of the surviving movies anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's a gorgeous woman. She's very, like, full-figured, dark-haired. Um, so I guess in that way she's sort of, she's a good match to his dark, good looks and everything. And she always plays the seductress, the Black Widow type. Um, she's the vamp. Uh, and so these vam- these vampires, that vamp is short for vampire, drained men of their will to live their vital juices and throw them aside just because that's how they are there's no there's no psychology there's no backstory there's no oh i was abused as a child or some man cheated on me nothing i'm trying to transcend my circumstances right an oppression as a woman or whatever yeah, yeah. they just do it because they like to yeah it's <laughs> just their thing so she sees him and she pulls him in and oh it's just it's fantastic 
I mean, if nothing else, you got to watch it for these scenes when they're together. Oh, my God. They are, again, they do begin to incorporate more of that old-fashioned acting stuff, but it works so well. He's like, he's like hovering over her like a hawk, like he wants to just pounce on her and like both have sex with her or kill her, you know, and, just, and she's like totally aware of his, of the anguish she's creating and she's reveling in the anguish and then one point she bites him and yeah. and then he flings her to the ground and he raises his arm to strike her but he stops himself because he's at heart a good man yeah and he's trembling and then he he dashes from the room and she throws her head back and cackles and, and, uh, and we can't hear her cackling but she throws her arms and head back and, and bears the whiteness of her bosom as she laughs <laughs> It's so good. And so full of energy and life, Mm -hmm. you know? Anyway, and it's not just people throwing themselves around. It's very thought out. Anyway, we highly recommend this film. But uh, Rudy was pretty irritated about how he'd been lied to. And this was actually the final straw on this one. So he's married Natasha. And, of course, so now together they're they're, uh, a union at this point, they're still kind of both looking in the same direction and wanting the same things and sort of all for one and one for all. Where he wants to work with her, he's listening to her, he acknowledges her, her actually much better taste than his, it's even agreed later, and she acknowledges his talent, his beauty, and wants to promote his... Um, success. Yeah, his public-facing success. Uh, they do end up finally getting married, yay! But... Right at this time, Valentino is kind of getting sick of the, of the whole thing. Of yeah. the studio, the way he's being treated. He's called in to shoot uh, The Spanish Cavalier, which is a, a film that didn't get made. And he's told, okay, this is going to be shooting in New York. So same deal again. They'd given him a raise to 1250 now. And they said, oh, and, and, and in, 20, in 1923, next year, you're going to get $2,000 a week. But only when he's actually shooting. Right. right. Okay. So now remember, people who are making this kind of money, nobody else was making this kind of money for the studios. Not even, certainly not Nazimova, not Mary Pickford, not Gloria Swanson. He's he's the big money maker, and they're all making more than five times as much as he is a week. So he's getting pretty sick of that. So he kicks up his heels. He says, "I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to work for you for this much money. I want I want seven thousand dollars a week." And, and I want control over my films. I want to be able to choose my films. I want to choose my director after he's lied to me about my directors and where it's going to film. And so they said, well, we'll give you $7,000 a week, but we're not giving you creative control. You have to do the movies that we tell you to do. And he says to the press, I cannot work for this motion picture corporation. I cannot endure the tyranny, the broken promises, the arrogance of the system of production. I cannot forgive the cruelty of the company to Mrs. Valentino. I cannot look forward to a sure eclipse of what promises to be a lasting career of great success, provided that I'm permitted to make productions consistent with my drawing power. Not unfair. And to interject, his reference to Mrs. Valentino is Natasha because he wanted her involved in the films and the studio did not, right? Right, exactly. And also, um, I don't know if he counted this, but remember, they didn't help him when he was jailed. They didn't support him in any way. Plus, they've lied to him on multiple occasions about what he was going to be earning and what would happen with the pictures and the kinds of pictures they were making him make. 
So he was really mad about that. But the studio, they did back down enough, and they did offer him that $7,000 a week, which today I did a little, did one of those things on Google, would it be $113,000 a week nice. today. Pretty sweet. That's pretty sweet. Now, of course, great big movie stars make way more than that today even. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and, and so he just decided that that's it. I'm not working for you. And he had the opportunity and probably would have been cast in Ben-Hur, which would have been amazing. So instead they found a kind of a Rudy lookalike named, uh, a guy's name is Ramon Navarro, who there's a whole thing about Ramon Navarro. He was gay, closeted obviously at the time. Ironic that they wanted to use him as a replacement for Rudy with all this. Right, the know, stuff the flattering is getting about. You're not being a man, not being masculine right. enough, right? So over time, you know, Navarro, he has a career and he's fairly famous, never broody level. And he gets older, and then there's, very tragically, when he's an older man, he dies, he's murdered. And it was by a pickup, by a young man that he picked up for for sex. And he was uh, killed very sadly in a very unsavory way. And there is a book that you shouldn't read because it's full of bullshit. It's called Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Anger. And he... Anger was an angry guy, and he was kind of pissed off at Hollywood because he couldn't make it. So he wrote this book, and he took every salacious story, of which there is some truth, and he took them and embroidered them with every bit of gossip, detail, and stuff he just made up. And one of the things that he made made up was that Navarro was killed with a dildo that had been given to him by Rudolph Valentino. Whoa. So let's try to make that into something. I know, I know. It's, it's ridic- it was just so ridiculous. If you want to um, uh, get a better handle on Hollywood Babylon, you must remember this, another podcast, far more f- popular famous podcast than this one, uh, done by Karina Longworth, does a whole season of the various stories that are in Hollywood Babylon and dissects them and goes through what's true, what isn't true. You can follow up with that. Anyway, that's the Ramon Navarro story. He, anyway, he got the part that Rudy could have had. Driving a chariot amazing it's a really cool film anyway so Rudy says no not working for you so the studio sued him to get an injunction to bar him from working at all at anything in the entire world like couldn't like any job yeah any job couldn't, what? Be, a, couldn't be a farmer or what that's, I mean nothing I know that sounds so illegal <laughs> I, well, well what happened is he appealed it and the court determined that, that he couldn't be prevented from, from earning a living. The guy has to earn a living, but that he could not work in another studio. And he couldn't work in film. Also, it said that he couldn't work in the, in the theater either. It was kind of non-compete. Yeah, exactly. So he couldn't be in the theater. He couldn't work on, on film, that kind of thing. And the thing is, is that he, at this time, he, he was going into this really interestingly, even though he, they offered him all this money, he was in huge debt. He'd already built up a bunch of debt. So interesting that he didn't say, well, okay, you know, I'll ride this out and then I'll go on my merry way. He was too impulsive. He was too hot. And then he was just too angry in his ego. He'd been so bruised by what they were doing. So he ended up not being able to do any kind of theatrical work. And it wasn't like he was going to go back to washing cars or uh, doing gardening. Right. Uh, so basically, uh, Natasha and he did a lot of spiritualism at the time. They did a lot of seances, and they tried to, to connect with the spirits and get information. about. And he really, really believed in this. 
Also, he believed that he had a spirit guide who was an indigenous American named Blackfeather. And there are a series of photographs of him dressing up like Blackfeather and posing, which wouldn't be considered like really cool today. But, you know, he really believed in it, and he believed that he was being guided. And that was a big thing, too, even though it hadn't come to quite the popularity that it did in the 60s and 70s in this country, but the spirituality of Native Americans. So they did a lot of referring to these uh, and, and asking for help and guidance on what, what they should do. So what happened is he met this guy named S. George Ullman, and he became Rudy's manager. Rudy became extremely dependent on him. It's almost like Rudy had a hard time having a one-on-one relationship. It seemed to always kind of be in a triangle. So Ullman became sort of the triangle with him and Natasha. So it wasn't just him and Natasha as partners in terms of business and art. Ullman was there too. But Ullman really was the one who had the, the money sense and the business sense way more than Rudy or Natasha did. Neither one of them really had a lot of that. So he, what he did is he set him up with a, and I love this because it's such a middle finger to the studio, that he ended up making uh, a, a ton of money uh, by doing a, a commercial dance tour for Mineral Lava. <laughs> and Mineral Lava was a beauty preparation that uh, he, they went around from city to city doing a, a dance demonstration. And then he was supposed to talk about how great Mineral Lava was and that Natasha uses it. And then he would say he uses it. Of course, that was more fodder for people to, right. to, to go after him. And they did an 88-city tour. And they danced there, and they also they added on holding beauty pageants. So each town where they went to, there would be a beauty pageant, and they would pick Miss Mineral Lava. And you can see an example of that on YouTube. There's a video of a beauty pageant in which he awards the winner a crown and stands around and takes press photos. Well, yeah, but that was at, that was at the end when all the 88 winners came to Washington. I think it was New York, Madison Square Garden, I think. And they that's the one they're doing. Oh, that's fun. So it's called Rudolph Valentino and, the, and his 88 Beauties. Yeah. Yeah. And it's silent, unfortunately. There is, there's only one recording of his voice, and it's him kind of weakly singing the song from uh, The Sheik. And apparently after they recorded it, he listened and goes, well, there goes my opera career. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's too bad. I really would have loved to hear his voice. But anyway, what happened was he not only did these lectures and these beauty pageants, apparently, this reminds me of uh, Lenny, uh, the movie Lenny, of Lenny Bruce, he would get up there and he was so enraged and he could not let go of his rancor over how the studio had treated him. How dare they, that he would spend a lot of time talking about the studio and how unfair they were and how bad these capitalists were and sucking off the, the talent of people and u- using them out. And it's to the point where there were a lot of reviews that this was really a, a cheat. Detractor. Oh. Yeah, it was a cheat. That they were just they danced and the whole show was barely an hour and then a lot of it was spent with him complaining. And, you know, people would walk out and things. So it wasn't a total success, unfortunately. Had he held it together, it might have been better. He also published books. At the same time, he published a, a book called Daydreams of His Poetry, hmm. which was, he says, it's not really poetry, it's more that he had, uh, he was into automatic writing. Again, having the spirit guide his hand. Oh, and so interesting. Was, yeah, so these were kind of spirit-inspired poems that he did. And he also became one of the first physical fitness gurus because at this time, men just really kind of didn't work out. And you can see it when they take off their shirts in movies at the time. Not too impressive for the most part. And so he did a whole book and magazine series of how to keep fit. So there are a lot of pictures you can see online of him showing how to do the 
how to do the various exercises and holding the weight and you see the muscle definition. So that was a whole thing that he did. And he could have made a whole business out of that, you know, if, if he ended up not having a movie career, right? And then what was happening kind of parallel to this is the movie studios, Metro and Famous Players, knew that they could make money on Rudy movies. So they were just re-releasing all his movies and they were going back to his very earliest movies, hmm. like uh, All Night Long mm-hmm. and those movies. And moving his name to the top, even though he wasn't a star, only was in like one scene, and re-releasing him and making tons of money. Because remember, there was no video. Once a movie wasn't in the theaters anymore, you didn't see it. Right. Basically, they were actually building his career for him and his profile for when he came back. Not bad. I know. I mean, that, that kind of really, really worked on it. In fact, they re-released Delicious Little Devil, and the star of that film was Mae Murray. And as we talked about it earlier... And so what happened is Mae Murray, she fought the court, uh, fought the studio, and went to court to get her name restored to the top billing. Not not seeing anything against Rudy, but hey, she was a star, and she she prevailed on that one. At one point during their tour, and they went to all these different towns. They were they went to a, a club, a famous club, and you know where there's dancing and the floor show and everything. And they ended up getting up and dancing and doing a, a show there. And this really weird thing is there was this like this woman who was like in the corner and she's like rattling her dishes and you know she's wearing all this jewelry and she's like rattling her dishes and, and kind of being really distracting. This was like at a speakeasy actually. When I say club, I mean speakeasy. And they're, they're very irritating and they couldn't figure it out. Then they discovered after the dancing that it was Gene Acker. That's really strange. <laughs> she's kind of following them around, yeah. being spiteful. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think she happened to be performing there as, maybe as Mrs. Well, she couldn't be Mrs. Ruta Valentino anymore, but she was doing her show. And she happened wow. to be that she went in and kind of distracted everybody from them. So after they did the Mineral Lava Tour and they were able to hold out, they prevailed. And uh, famous players, Lasky, gave him everything he wanted. And so he came back, and what he really wanted was... Actually, what he really wanted was his freedom because he hated them and he hated Adolf Zucker. But he couldn't get that, but he got everything he wanted within the contract. So he had to do another movie for them. And then in the meantime, he had another contract set up with this company called Ritz Carlton where he made his movies with Natasha Rambova. This was a brand new company. Again, did not do his due diligence. Well, we're gonna, uh, You'd hope he learned his lesson, but he never does. He really never does, and it, it's just so sad. So what happens is uh, he, he comes back. They choose two productions. They choose that it could either be a film of 18th century France called Monsieur Bouquet, or he could make Captain Blood. With, by Raphael Sabatini. Oh, so <laughs> I know, I know. If you've listened before, you know that's one of our favorite older Hollywood films. Oh, it's so good with, uh, with Errol Flynn. Now that's a sound picture made in the early in the 1935, I think. But this would have been silent. But it would have been amazing. But again, they wanted to make art pictures. Right. They didn't want to make popular. Popular. Films. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't really realize how great art that is. You know. So anyway, it makes me really sad when I saw that. So they came back and they made this film and they took a trip to Europe before the film was made. For the first time in 10 years that he'd been back. He did go to Italy and, you know, his mother had passed, but he saw his brother. He met his nephew. His nephew adored him and brought him beautiful presents and uh, they, they toured around. And they also went to France and Rudy was really good. He 
he used it as a publicity trip too. So he had this friend of his who would go into towns or whatever before him and set up all the uh, publicity appearances and interviews and you know, kind of get the word out that he was coming because he wasn't as famous in Europe as he was here. So he had to like drum up some enthusiasm for this mm -hmm. whole thing. And uh, he also, of course, what he did there was he, he bought clothes, he bought cars. He bought himself a car and he bought one for Natasha. And you can go on YouTube and you can see this car still exists. It is a piece of art. It's so beautiful. Such a beautiful car. Yeah. I won't even try to describe it, but it's just just gorgeous. It was handmade because this wasn't a Ford uh, Model T. Factory line. Comes yeah. out off the assembly line. These things are made. He hobnobbed with no nobility and artists. He was just in his element because this is where he wanted to be. And, like, for example, when he was in London, he stayed at the Carlton Hotel, which was the best, most beautiful hotel. And he had reporters come up to his apartment there, and, and he received them wearing a magnificent dressing gown over purple pajamas. And he, he wore rings on his fingers and Russian leather slippers, as they reported. Lovely. So he looked fantastic, <laughs> and he, he received them and gave them interviews. They went to France, and, and he said, I do not care to see the battlefields of France. To me, the wounds of the earth, the despoliation of the ancestral beauty would be like gashes in fair flesh. Paris still wears flowers in her hair, but now they are flowers plucked from graves. I mean, who talks like that? <laughs> That's amazing. So, so they, they did this tour, and they spent tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on clothes and and fabrics and basically they're buying stuff for the movie mm -hmm. antiques mm. things that were going to appear in one corner in the background but it had to be authentic really overkill on this whole situation it just didn't have a sense of reality but that was them that's what made their charm i guess but the the thing is is now that they were together and they were really living day to day and it was real life the Cracks in the relationship started to show because of their of their differences. Rudy was gregarious. He liked people around all the time. He had this kind of triangular relationship that I talked about. You know, so he always kind of had somebody around, a minion or a bunch of minions and friends. And Natasha was a solitary person. She wanted one-on-one -on -one with Rudy, she, or she wanted to be by herself in the quiet to read, to you know, contemplate, to create. Very very different personalities and. She was not a throw-it-all-to-the-winds kind of person. And so when they got to Europe, Rudy, we talked about this before, he had bad vision and he loved to drive fast. And he was very reckless because he believed that Blackfeather was guiding him and that he would always Keeping be safe because Blackfeather would keep him safe, right? And so he was just driving. And, and the thing is, is they, they were driving around Europe They because in those days you really didn't. Flying was a very special thing. So he was driving from across countries and she had to get in the car with him and she she just couldn't handle it and and uh, he said and he said to her or he said to somebody but what is a man to do when the dream of speed possesses him <laughs> <laughs> and so at one point in one day he ran into a telephone pole and then later he hit a cart that was driven by an ancient crone <laughs> an ancient crone <laughs> And, and, and then she wanted to stay over and rest, and he wanted to move on because he wanted to keep going. And then she finally 
Finally, she had a meltdown. And apparently that night in their room, she sobbed and sobbed and could not stop crying. She could not control herself. And he was just like floored. And I'm sure he felt very bad. He wasn't going to change his ways, but he did feel bad about her. her and she was just was crying and crying and she just could not get a hold of herself. And so she ended up going back to her, well, I forgot to mention her parents not only had the place in the Adirondacks, they had a chateau. Of course. And she moved in there. And by the way, her stepfather was a, a perfumier. And he was somebody who made perfume. And he was a super rich uh, capitalist based on all this perfume stuff. So anyway, she went back to the chateau and she relaxed. She and Rudy had, had stayed there for a while and had really a nice time together. She recuperated. She got back. She didn't go on with him. And then she did meet him in Italy. And she met his family. And she did not get along with his family. Aww. Well, his sister, he had his sister Marie and then his brother Alberto and the, uh, the nephews. And she just didn't get them. They were very just kind of like old-timey. Normal traditional, people. traditional Italian people wearing, you know, they were not wearing quote unquote nice clothes. They were, they didn't get into art. They, they didn't know what he did. They didn't. So she kind of didn't know how to relate to them, which I think created tension there because they, they didn't know how to relate to each other. They tried, but it, it didn't go that well. So when he drives into Italy or to his old hometown or any town in Italy, his movies hadn't shown there except maybe in Milan, like some of his movies but the rest of Italy didn't know who he was which is amazing yeah really so the thing that drew the crowds huge crowds would come is because they hadn't seen a car and such a fancy one <laughs> so they're like oh my god look at this car so you just got crowds of people they didn't know who he was at all which is really really funny and so um, when he got there he bought his nephew a bicycle and bought them presents and paid for his nephew's music lessons uh, and so forth so he really contributed to the family when they came into Europe, they left. They brought 15 trunks of clothes. Wow. When they returned, they had 30 trunks, plus two cars, paintings, and furniture. Just cargo loads of painting and furniture. Exhausting. Right. And this was per- personally for them and also for the movie. One thing I did forget to mention is that just sort of showing the haplessness of Rudy around, around things is... When they went to, uh, they did spend Christmas with Natasha's parents in at their chateau, and they had this beautiful Christmas tree. And you can imagine they would make it all arty and old timey and beautiful. So of course they put real, they put real candles on the trees. And Natasha put real candles on the trees, and they burnt the tree down. Well, <laughs> what do you expect? That's funny. All the fancy stuff on it just caught fire. Goes up at the chateau. It's so funny. So impractical. I know. So, okay. Got them back from Europe. God, this is really going on long. I hope guys aren't bored with this. I think it's so fascinating. Well, it seems like next time we'll get back into sort of the end of Rudy's film career. Mm -hmm. The way that his marriage with Natasha goes. And the end of his life. So much good stuff. Bye, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to fobblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.